Writing a book takes time and effort, and life's too short to write a book that no one will read. On this episode, we invited someone to help us understand how to minimise the risk of writing books that aren't actually useful or reach their audience. His name is Rob Fitzpatrick, and he's the author of Write Useful Books, The Workshop Survival Guide, and the one that we've been recommending for years, The Mum Test. I've been reading his latest book, Write Useful Books, and thought it was a really useful take on how to approach writing non-fiction that helps people. He combines the product design, lean strategy and marketing concepts to provide a practical and structured approach that helps you focus on writing something of value. Rob's been an entrepreneur for 14 years and has written three books about his learnings along the way. Back in 2007, he dropped out of grad school to go through Y Combinator with his first startup and has been building products and businesses ever since. Beyond software, he's also kickstarted a physical card game, built an educational agency, and so much more. A programmer by training, Rob was forced to learn enterprise sales the hard way at his first company. With a foot in each of these worlds and with his experience, both bootstrapping and raising funding across a wide range of products, industries, and business models, he offers a broad and balanced view of the entrepreneurial journey. Enjoy. I've been doing startups for about 15 years now. I fell into it largely accidentally. I was wanted to be an academic and then I, I realized that it's quite bureaucracy heavy, more so than I was willing to deal with. And so I took my master's research, pitched it to Y Combinator. PG said, no, this is a terrible work or this is a terrible idea. It'll never work and it'll never scale. But he really liked the team we'd put together, the, the demos we'd built. And so he said, if you can come up with an idea that doesn't suck by the end of the meeting, we'll probably invest in it. You know, we had six minutes. I asked if he'd help. We, we threw around some ideas and we ended up getting the funding. And that set us down the scalable startup hypergrowth journey, which ended up being a terrible fit for both uh, my values and goals as a person and also the team we'd built. We would have been much better off building a creative agency or something smaller scale, bootstrapping, more relaxed. But once we're on the scalable journey, you know, we, we did what people do. We moved to San Francisco. We chased the next round of funding. You know, we, we tried to come up with a, a way to bend our idea to a billion dollar uh, valuation and, and we ended up failing and it was very stressful to do so because I, I kind of felt like we were working so hard to chase someone else's dreams, which is a recipe for burnout and unhappiness. And so after that, I was broke and burned out. And so I switched to pure kind of survival businesses, pay the bills, but recover my time. I, I wanted my time and attention to myself to figure out what was next, to study, to learn, to think. So I, I ran a bunch of little, there were more gigs than businesses, but they kept a roof over my head and they, they let me keep learning. And then after that, I wanted to switch more toward reliability. So I did, I think of the, the, what are you optimizing for when you build a product or a business? You can optimize for scale, you can optimize for freedom, or you can optimize for its chances of success, it's reliability. So I shifted into reliability, built a little education agency to about a million a year. And then we, we drifted away because the founders had different goals, um, but that was fine. And after that, I was like, okay, I'm financially secure. My books were working well. My books were doing enough in royalties to kind of pay for my life. So I thought, great, I'm retired. Early 30s, let's go. This was the, the goal all along. So I took three years off. I learned to sail. I rebuilt an old sailboat. I spent three years kind of going around um, England, France, through the canals, over to the Mediterranean, around the Spanish coast. And then I just got bored. And so I was like, all right, well, it, it, if that's not what I wanted, I thought that was what I wanted. I've learned it isn't. So let me settle down. So I settled down in Barcelona, now the mountains, and got serious about, about business again. 
And now, yeah, I like to think we're building a calm company. We're still in the early stages. We're doing about 10,000 a month right now. Um, we're just getting going. We've got a team of four and it's been calm, relaxed. We're really enjoying it. We're all working half time, working with my close friends, you know, my, it's, it's great. So that's where I'm at. And the business is around books and obviously building useful books is also a passion of mine. Uh, they've been really important to my life. They've been transformative to my career. And broadly speaking, people don't understand books, how they behave as products that everyone wants to build books like an art piece written in secret when you should build them, at least nonfiction, like a product iterating in public while in constant contact with your readers, right? All, all the same stuff we do to startups. That's kind of where I'm at. Uh, and that's been my journey from scale to freedom to reliability and starting to get a little bit back to scale now, but on my own terms. Bending an idea to a billion dollar business and then burn out. It's just like, I love the inspiration. That sounds like a book title in itself. <laughs> if I didn't hate you before, because of where you are in the mountains and having fresh mountain water coming out of your taps, the, the, that whole journey, while it sounds quite challenging, is like that, to be able to just spend some time thinking, okay, what do I want to do next? This just sounds like heaven. Something that okay. surprised me is how little I've been able to predict what I want. And I found that I, I have to try it. Like I, I, for years, I thought early retirement, financial independence, that's all I want. And almost as soon as I had it, I was like, oh, wait, I was wrong. I actually want to work on interesting projects with fun people in a, in a, in a calm way. And I want to build stuff. And so it, it's funny. I never would have guessed that if you'd asked me. And I, I think there's so much value in trying these things out and finding quick ways to them. Well, it, it speaks to a couple of things that we've talked to in the past in our community. One of them being kind of the emergent approach to finding out what the hell you want to do with your life, as opposed to this is it, I'm going to go for it, and that's what's going to happen. But then there's this, I, I think there's an element of this of by doing stuff, you learn what you want, as opposed to saying this is what I want, and then you do the stuff. And it's interesting here, you talk, you're talking about calm companies, and this is maybe for some people listening, they haven't heard that term before. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit just before we go over? Yeah, I'm basically stealing the language from Calm Fund and, and Tyler Tringas because it, it really resonates with me. And it, it, it's just a distinction where we think in terms of funding models, right? Like you're venture funded or you're bootstrapped, but there's also this idea of like we can't evaluate businesses or products or books or anything in the vacuum of a spreadsheet. That's what investors get to do when they have a portfolio and they only care about the end result, the expected value, et cetera. Like for, for me, I care much more about the day-to-day -day experience of running the business. What's it going to feel like? Am I going to wake up excited? Am I going to go to sleep stressed out and worn down? And who am I going to be working with? Are we going to have to hire tons of people to do customer support? Can we do it with a small team? Are we able to take a couple months off and put it on pause? Or are we really forced to go as fast as we can to, to lock in some winner-take-all thing? So all of these questions, I call them collectively the shape of the idea. And while you can't predict exactly what the journey to a, a business, a book, whatever is going to be like, you can predict the the experience of building it and what the day-to-day -day is going to feel like and how the shape of that idea is going to fit into the context of your life. Like you can think if, if you want to write a book, you're like, okay, this is probably going to take me an hour and a half per day for the next year. Do I want to wake up an hour and a half earlier? Do I want to drop a hobby? Do I want to make that time? This is probably going to involve putting my early ideas out there in public. That's going to mean some sort of blogging or talking or like newslettering habit, because otherwise, where are you getting your feedback from? It's going to mean some sort of individual outreach to your potential readers, like offering to help them, to coach them, kind of the equivalent of customer development, figuring out what your readers need and where they get stuck and where they get confused. 
So you can predict that the, the shape of the project, it applies to books, it applies to businesses. And when I think about a comp company, for me, so I've already got my baseline finances sorted in the sense that I never need to work again, not in a way where I can live fancy, but just in a way where I've got that safety net. And, and so then I go, okay, do I want to build something bigger, either bigger financially, bigger in terms of impact, bigger in terms of challenge, whatever. Yes, I do. I, I, I love it. It's super fun. But then also, do I want to sacrifice the, the, the life I've got at the moment? Do I want to compromise that life? Do I want to go back into turbo stress mode? No. So to me, that's where the calm company falls, where it's, it's got a growth path. It's, it's, you know, potentially ambitious, but you're also preserving that, that day to day experience in a way you're happy with. And you can't just do it. I think you can't just do it to any project. Like if you want to start a winner take all network effect business, or if you want to build like a phone app, a consumer app. You kind of have to go fast and it, it's really hard to pause that. Um, and so I, I see a lot of people where they've got like a, a, a hyper growth idea and they're like, let's make it calm. And maybe they can do that for a month, but it's, it's unsustainable. It, like your, your leverage moment is during idea selection. It's when you're deciding what to work on and you look at it and you go, how does it fit into my life? What's the shape of this idea? Is, is that going to be acceptable? I mean, you wrote a post about this years ago, Carlos, the idea of a lifestyle business and how people often look down on those types of businesses because it feels like oh it's just a lifestyle business it's just you know you guys just bumming around in the mountains in spain and making a little bit of money so that's the plank devil's advocate because that's that's the reaction i'm guessing you must get from vcs and people like that who maybe view your company with maybe a bit more <laughs> skeptical view is that fair so vcs keep trying to give us money which i keep having to say no no it's we, we don't want it really um and the biggest strategic question that um, Devin and I, Devin's my, my co-founder, is we keep asking ourselves, we're like, are we in a rush? Do we need to be in a rush? It does, does this business model, does this industry, we're basically trying to create a new publishing model and education and support for independent nonfiction authors. It's a mix of education, software, and a, a publishing model that sits on top of it. And, like, If we go slowly, is someone else able to come in and take our lunch? And, and we, we think about that a lot and we, we try to think about it honestly. And, and we're like, actually, well, if we went down this direction, then that pushes us into a network effect winner take all thing. And that becomes dangerous. And we have to go fast. So then we have to raise the money. And we, if we go this other way, then it doesn't have those network effects. It doesn't have those winner take all dynamics. So then we feel like we can go slower and still build a substantial business at our own pace. And so I, I don't, I, I don't think it's always possible. Like, I, I agree that sometimes it's, it's basically saying like, you know, I'm just going to chill and I'm sort of giving up the future prize. But it, there's some industries and some business model dynamics where I, th I think, I mean, I may be proven wrong, but based on what I currently see, you know, I think it's possible if you're thoughtful enough with the idea selection. Hmm. And it means turning down most ideas, you know, because yeah. most ideas do not have these, these sorts of favorable dynamics. It makes me think of enjoying the journey much more from what you've said, that sort of race to the top feels like a tiring one and a not a sustainable one whereas this feels more like enjoying the journey enjoying the ride while exploring opportunities along the way yeah if when i'm writing a book for example i'm never in a rush it's one of the reasons i got excited about books because um what attracted me the business model of books is it's a product you can build with a team of one on your own terms on your own timelines and it requires zero maintenance or customer support once it's finished it's finished um the problem with them is they tend to take a year or two to create and you don't get paid until the end and most books fail. The <laughs> average New York Times nonfiction bestseller hits its peak sales within 12 weeks, loses 95% of that peak within the first year and never recovers. 70% of traditionally published books never sell enough copies 
to pay a single dollar in royalties because they never covered the advance. Like, and so if you look at these from a statistical sense, you go, wow, like uh, books are a, an incredible gamble. There's no way I should invest a year or two in this. But I loved the dynamics. I loved by yourself, no support, no maintenance. To me, it's like, if it succeeds, it's pure passive income, right? It's like mm-hmm. the dream. Amy Oy has this great quote about a software. She goes, passive income isn't passive because you're always maintaining. You're always doing customer support. You're always doing something, right? Um, but with books, it is actually passive. And any sort of growth you do to it, if it's succeeding, is, is an option, not an obligation. You can push it to make it grow further and grow faster, but you don't have to. And so I kind of tried to reverse engineer that and I go, what makes these books that grow through word of mouth rather than the author's active marketing? And they last for decades, not for weeks. And I, and I tried to reverse engineer that and I, I applied the product approach where I go, okay, they solve a sharp problem for a well-defined reader. They're not trying to do everything for everyone. Um, they're not about a topic. They're about helping the reader act to or do something or make a difference. And like in the business space, you can think of a really long lasting recommendable book like The E-Myth Revisited. And if you think about how that happens, it happens because someone owns a small business and they're stressed. They're like, they don't have time. They don't have profit. They're, they're failing at hiring. They're failing at delegation. They, they, they don't see the path to the exit. And they talk, they say that to someone, they complain to a friend, to a mentor, and the mentor goes, ah, I know the answer to your question. It, it's this book. It's called The E-Myth. And that's how the mom test grows. Also, people go, man, everyone says to talk to customers, but it's freaking hard. And they're lying to me. It doesn't work. And someone goes, ah, I know the answer to your problem. It's this book, The Mom Test. And if you, you do that all the time, <laughs> right? And that, that, that's the recommendation loop. And I tried to kind of, I go, okay, I don't want to build a big platform. I don't want to be a book marketer. I don't want to try to do the PR wave gamble. Like, so this is all that's left. It has to be long lasting, recommendable. Then you go, what needs to be true for that to happen? Well, it has to be the best solution in the world for that particular type of reader. Because if there was a better book than the mom test to help a technical introvert understand customer conversations, you would recommend that book instead. Um, but is it the best book for a, an experienced salesperson? No, not at all. Is it the best book for an experienced user researcher? No, but it, so it's not the best book for everyone. It's the best book for someone. Mm-hmm. And, and that also allows you to cut a lot of the fluff. Like in the mom test, I don't need to explain what customer development is. And I don't need to argue why it's valuable because the reader I've chosen already knows what it is and is already trying to do it. So I can start with how to do it, which, which is why it's able to be short. And there's this concept in books. You want to want to pursue maximum value per page. Because the, the reader experience of a book, they pay once with money and they pay a second time with their time. And the time they spend on the book is way more expensive than the money. And so if they bought a book, which they expect to solve a problem, and then the first like three chapters are explaining why that problem matters, they're like, yeah, I already know. And that's a failure of product design. And it's a misunderstanding of the reader's experience and the reader's journey. And if they don't get far enough through the book to receive the value, and if that value doesn't reach their life, then they're not going to recommend it. And, and so all these things combine in the product design of books, and then that also influences the way you test it, the data you're looking at, how you iterate it, and all this stuff combines, and, and it just works. And it totally flips the business model dynamics and the profitability and the impact of books on their head. And that's what I've been doing, and it's worked three times now. We have a bunch of other authors in the community who are also doing it, and you know, just treat them like products. You presented a very uh, eloquent argument for a, an approach to thinking about books very uh, part of it is like being very clear about the customer, uh, kind of you've touched on the process about writing in public. 
Um, I wanted to rewind a bit and to hear, how did it go with the mom test? The mom test came out of my personal frustration of being told to go talk to my customers in my first business. And I tried. And then we went out of business anyway. And I was pretty pissed off because I didn't enjoy the activity of going out and trying to talk to strangers. And even when we did exactly what they said, it, they still didn't buy it at the end. I was like, man, there's more to it than this. And I was reading all these books about sales and customer interviews. And what I realized is they were all written by people who are naturally good at it. Because who writes these books? The world's best. Who becomes the world's best? People who are naturally pretty good. They, they can't empathize with someone like me who is terrible. I needed to get from terrible to functional. I didn't need to go from pretty good to amazing. And they just didn't get what I was struggling with. And so I couldn't understand their advice. I didn't have the, all the foundational knowledge that would allow their advice to stick. And so when I eventually figured it out with the help of kind of advisors and, and peers and, and working through it, and I, I just want to write that. I wanted to write the how to do the basics for introverted techies. And once you, once you get that, you, maybe you can start learning from the other books afterwards. And I had, a, I guess, a common issue, which is, I was like, is, and is it okay if I write this book? Because all I've ever done at this stage of my career is fail. And, can, can I, and what I realized is that I couldn't write a book about how to succeed at business, but I could write a book about how to do this one specific skill, this task, if, if you were someone like me. And that's the way I tried to focus it. And I tried to be honest about that. And for me, that resolved the imposter syndrome. It's like, this is not how to build a business. This is how to get unbiased feedback from customers. And now I'm a little bit more experienced. I've got more data points. I feel like I could go back and give slightly broader uh, advice. But you know, as, at the time, that's how I dealt with it. And I didn't want to, as mentioned, be a book marketer, but I, I knew that I needed to get a few people to know about it. So I call this the seed audience. And I made sure that 800 people got copies of the books. I did it mostly through event giveaways, but there's other ways that you can do this. And once those 800 people had it, I said, that's it. I'm done marketing. If the book now disappears, it's because it's bad and it deserves to disappear. If, on the other hand, the book has value, 800 people know about it and they will tell other people. And now, you know, it's sold 100,000 copies. The three books together do about 20,000 a month in royalties, which is nice. And they're growing. It's that book's been out for nine years now, and every month is better than the previous month. It's taught at all the big universities. It's used by the accelerators. So that that's a case where it was an interesting idea, framed hopefully in an honest way, without a lot of fluff, high value per page, written for a certain type of reader, and it it served its its purpose in solving that problem. Uh, and since then, you know, the, it, it's grown. And that one was kind of intuitive. I just applied the the tech product approach to a book. And I'm like, I hope it works. And, and it did. And so then with the next two books, I did that a lot more intentionally, used a lot more beta readers, used a lot more data, mix of quantitative and qualitative. And I had a pretty good sense before those books were even launched that they would follow the same track and succeed, which has been true, which is nice because normally publishing is a gamble. It's publish and pray, right? And, and you, can, you can bring so much of that learning forward, just like with any other product. You talk about three books, maybe just first share the titles of those three books so that people... Yeah, I've got them just here. The Mom Test was about <laughs> Custev, so talking to customers, getting unbiased feedback. Um, the Workshop Survival Guide is, well, how to design and, and teach educational workshops. So that's, you know, it, it's the same idea. Like my, my friends joke that I've written the th same book three times because it is basically how to listen to your customers and figure out if what you're doing makes sense. It's just applied to startups, to workshop and education design, and now to uh, designing nonfiction with the latest right, useful books. And this one I'm treating a bit differently because this one I'm wrapping a whole business around. 
the book is kind of the top of funnel, the manifesto, the education for our way of approaching nonfiction. And then some people usually, they read the book. If they want to do it, they join our, our author's community, which is like a paid subscription community. As they advance, they then start using our software. Um, the people who do really well, because then we see the performance of their manuscript pre-launch with their beta readers, we then extend publishing offers to. So we've got kind of like book into paid community, into software, into publishing. And, and, and so since there's a whole business on top of the book, the value per customer is a lot higher, which justifies an ongoing marketing effort. Whereas if people are only buying the book, it's really hard to justify spending time on ongoing marketing. Just going back to the experience of writing a book, hmm. I'm curious to hear more about, you start off with an idea. It sounds like with Montest, clear idea, just going to write it. That's what happened. Is that the experience for all of the books or how much evolution happens during the process? And what does that, what did that mean for both books or both subsequent books? A lot of evolution happens, particularly if you're running the process properly because you're using a lot of reader conversations. Like the, the, the MVP for a book is a coaching conversation. So let's say I'm writing a book about, uh, well, workshop design. <laughs> if people want the book, the book is promising to help them structure their workshops, right? If people want that book, they're also going to want to talk to me on a Zoom call where I help walk them through designing a workshop. And where they get confused and where they see value, where their face lights up, where I say something that has an impact, that goes straight into my table of contents. And so I use a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching calls for free. You can do it paid also if you've already got a coaching practice. It's the way to basically iterate on the book's promise, its structure, its education design, its table of contents, the steps, the tools, the anecdotes, the examples, all of that gets tested before a word has been written. And if people don't want to talk to me, I throw the book away and I don't even start it because I'm like, there's no way they're going to read the book if they didn't want to have the free conversation. Other people get the same result by things like blogging writing in public. Near Ayal, Arvid Call, Marty Kagan, they all use this approach, Seth Godin, where they'll tend to blog about the topic of their upcoming book for a while. You'll notice that, you know, Seth Godin talks about a topic for about a year, and then magically a book comes out, which is about that topic. Marty Kagan does the same thing. And this is their way to just put the ideas out there and see what resonates, see what works. And by the time they sit down, they're like, yep, I know these ideas, these chapters, these make sense. And then it's just kind of stringing that together into a, a, a cohesive product. Um, after the conversation stage, I, I consider that to be finished when I've got what I call a scope, which is um, the promise of the book, the reader profile. So what it does, who it's for, um, the recommendation loop. So I understand the situation in their life, which causes them to express their problem and receive the book as a recommendation. And that I, I know it works because I've, I've delivered the results through coaching conversations. So with the workshop survival guide, for example, um, kind of before and during writing it, we adopted a couple facilitators and we basically brought their day rates from 500 per day to 5,000 per day by just having them apply our process. And we're like, okay, so this works for people who aren't us. Um, and that makes me very confident. And again, that, that removes the imposter syndrome because I'm like, I'm, I'm not trying to convince myself that it works. I've proven to myself that it works by helping people. And then after that, then the risk shifts from the knowledge and the product, the risk shifts to the actual writing. Like if you ever read a book about chess, it's clear that it's being written by a chess master and yet you still don't get better at chess after reading it. Like that the knowledge somehow doesn't make it from the writer's head to the page to the reader's head. And if that's true, then people like, I can tell the author's smart, but they didn't help me. And a, a lot of like advice books are like this. 
And so then you start testing the actual manuscript. You go into the tank, you write it, one, two, three drafts, something like that. And then immediately beta reading. Some people are even more aggressive. Like Marty Kagan starts his beta reading when he's just written the core idea, six pages long, six or 12 pages. And he starts, because he's like, if the core idea as a 12 pager doesn't work for people, then they're not going to read the 200 page version. And I've been doing that with the, the, the next book I've started working on. So powerful. And you're just combining all these techniques to bring the learning forward. And what I look for in beta reading, we actually wrote custom software for beta reading because the, the like Google Docs isn't good enough for this. And I want to know things like where's the reader getting bored, confused, starting to skim, giving up. And I basically debug the chapters of the book as if they were an acquisition funnel where I'm going like, okay, I'm losing too many readers are churning between chapters three and four. So either chapter three was a grind or chapter four has an undesirable promise. So I'm going to go in and that's where I'll focus my editing time. So you get a mix of quantitative and qualitative signals and you're basically trying to front load the value, increase the value per page, cut the confusion, cut the fluff, and basically drive people through this like page by page or chapter by chapter funnel until they've received the value and been able to apply it in their lives. Um, and if you can do that, then that really activates the recommendation loop. Whereas like typically a business book spends the first 30 pages being like, I am very credible. Listen to my life story. Like, I already believe you're credible. I bought your book. Like, start giving me the value you promised on the cover. It's like authors completely misunderstand what the reader's actual experience is going through these things. So I'm going to defer to Lawrence there, because given you're actually going through this process, I'm wondering if you have any, you know, you're going to be more connected to the people out there, maybe who are trying to do this writing process themselves. Any kind of questions that come up for you or uh, thoughts about what you're trying to do? Other than I'm doing it all wrong. Uh, <laughs> well, I suppose to some extent, I'm, I know, I've blogged for a long time. There's some validation for some of the stuff I've written. I feel confident in what I've got to say. I think the challenge for me has just been the product, you know, the book rather than me as a writer or even the problem that exists out there on the customer. So I'm really clear on the problem, really clear on the customer. Um, I think the process I've been going through has been wrong in terms of it's felt more of a creative pursuit rather than actually let's sit down and think of this strategically in terms of as we would a, a business idea or someone else's startup that we're trying to work with. So I think it just really helps me think about actually try and get out of it's about me to it's not, it's about them, it's about what they're trying to do, it's about the promise I've got for them. And I actually quote one of your lines from years ago, which I remember when we first came across your work was um, bad news gets worse the longer you leave it, which is, um, I think, very true to all of us who are trying to test out new ideas, particularly around something creative like a book. And so in some ways, we'd rather wait longer to find out really bad news rather than get some feedback earlier on that gets us on a the, on the better path. Yeah, I, I was chatting to Nirayal recently and he talked about this. He goes, man, it's so painful to hear that your early readers hate it, mm. but it's so much better to hear it there yeah. than in an Amazon review. There's something for me, uh, particularly the types of people that we work with and the audience we have, there is this real tension with between the very um, clear process that you have here and this emotional connection to the work. So writing's a fairly long journey. And one approach to that, that that some people have taken is to find ways to make it quicker. You know, write a book in a week, write a book in a month, whatever. And that's not the way that resonates with me. What resonates with me is like, okay, I'm going to commit a lot of my time to this. And I care about what I'm saying. I, I care about this idea, or I care about this knowledge, or I care about the impact on my readers' lives. And so I want to overinvest my time and effort to increase that idea's odds of getting out into the world in a way that's going to be long-lasting, recommendable, and able to grow beyond me. 
you know, sometimes people say, they go, oh, I don't have a reputation. No one knows me. Can I write a book? Well, my reputation came because of my books. Like I got a reputation because my book succeeded. My books didn't succeed because I had a reputation. Um, now I have a little bit more of a reputation, which obviously makes it easier and it, it, it's helpful, but I didn't for the first two. And what pulls me through the hard parts, because there are hard parts, different authors enjoy different parts of the process. I really enjoy the drafting and I really hate the editing. Editing to me is just like mundane, busy work. Whereas I know some authors who are the opposite. The blank page is a nightmare for them. And once they're into the editing, it feels very, you know, they, they enjoy that work. I think everyone enjoys certain parts of the process, but not all of it. And for me, the fact that I've been in contact with my readers and I know they want it and I know it works for them. And every time I start to lose my enthusiasm, I just get something new in front of my readers, like a, a new version to beta read, um, a new coaching conversation. Uh, I put something out on YouTube. It's like I do something and I'm like, and their enthusiasm pulls me forward. And if that enthusiasm isn't there, that's an important data sign. The disinterest is the data. And it's like, what do I do? And if, if, I don't want to talk to my readers. And this has happened to me. I've thrown away a few books that I started writing when they were mid-manuscript. If I don't want to talk to my readers at this early stage to build a good product, then I'm probably also not going to be willing to do the seed marketing later. So it's almost like an early warning sign that I don't care. And then I'm not going to follow through well enough to make the, the product succeed. So then I, you know, I write it off. I've done that with a few books. Uh, and you know, now for me, yeah, that's how it starts. It's like, you know, do I care? Do they care? If so, great. Let's keep going. <laughs> and partway through beta reading, also, I switch into uh, pre-launch marketing. So with Write Useful Books, I'd had a couple hundred beta readers. I, I went pretty hard on the beta reading because, uh, you know, it's like the book is kind of self-referential about it. And I wanted to make sure I ran the, the purest version of the pro process. And once it was clear that the book was still a mess, but readers were getting value. I, I switched it from beta reading to early access and I started charging people $24 to get early access and basically become my beta readers. And that did 10 or 20 grand in revenue before I'd ever launched it, where people were basically paying me to provide feedback on, on, on my book, which is amazing because normally it's like, that's an expense. And it, it suddenly it became a, a, a profit center. And they I, I was able to start detecting the recommendability because like these early beta readers were then sharing it with their friends who were joining and I could get these early signs of growth and impact and then setting up the community all of those early access uh customers i also put into a community they got grandfathered in off their one one time 24 dollars payment whereas now people have to pay per month and because they're in the community i was able to check in with them every couple of weeks they say hey i don't get this or hey i'm stuck on this or i'd say hey you know it's been a couple of weeks since you read the book what are you stuck on where are you at anything i can help with Every one of them, I gave them a Calendly link so they could jump on a call with me. I was like, hey, let's just talk about your book and your problems. Suddenly, it was infinite custev coming to me and in many cases paying me. And it was like a zero time tax, right? None of the scheduling hassle, the back and forth. And that, that reader community is now, you know, grown into a, or a standalone product, kind of. It's like our nonfiction authors community. And... That's the stack, I think, like book, community, software, like business, services, business, whatever. If you want to really like optimize a book, like mom test, I don't have any of that. I only do book royalties. And that's still about 12,000 a month, I'd say in royalties, which is not nothing. Um, but the, the current book is already overtaking that because I've got a bit more of this strategic stack built on top of that. Whether I care versus whether my customer cares or the reader cares, I should say. And, you know, the, the pivot or persevere aspect of that. Cause I think that's maybe for, for me, that feels that like could be a challenge. Like I really care about this book, but some people aren't 
responding you to it well and okay i put it down but then it's something maybe i really want to write or the opposite is like oh people are getting really good feedback they love it but mm, this is not really what i want to write and is there anything you can talk to for that one nice story that came out of our community from uh, Gerald Vanderpute, and he's posting most of his stuff on uh, LinkedIn. He's from Ghana originally and left Ghana when he was eight, moved to London, and he wanted to write some sort of book about investing back into Africa. It's like, how do we invest in Africa, African ecosystem, African business, whatever? And that was his spark. That He's like, okay, some sort of book about that. And he started exploring it and he started talking to some people. He's like, they don't care. And it was just like when you're doing customer interviews, you're like, okay, I talked to 10 people. Eight of them don't care at all, but two really cared. Who are, who are those two? What makes them unique or the similar? And he goes, oh, it, it, it's not people who are still living in Africa. It's not people who have never been there. It's people who were born there and left. They're the ones who are really like, they feel it in the heart that they want to bring their success back into Africa. And it's like, okay, so it's that diaspora group. And he goes, okay. And then the next stage was he realized he didn't care. He's like, oh man, so much of this is just about banking and regulation and garbage. And the bit that excited him was peer-to-peer. It's skipping all of that and using crypto. And so he goes, oh wow, the book I want to write is how the African diaspora can reinvest directly back into African people, not African institutions, through crypto. And like how all this enables... And now he's super excited. His readers are super excited. He's kicking out the blogs. He, he's got like everyone wants to talk to him. And he sort of worked this way from that original broad topic was the spark. And as he explored, he's like, oh, the, they don't care, but these people do. Oh, I don't care, but I care about this part. And, and you know, that, that's where he's at now. And, and he, he's loving it. He's got so much energy. And, and suddenly he's like finding time and making progress every day. For me, why here is the underlying curiosity around that. It's not like, oh, I got an idea. How can I make this happen? It's like there was a sound life process. Oh, two people are interested. And then what is it about them? And then what is it about me? And then so rather than just dropping it because the initial idea wasn't great, it's like it's kind of like uncovering the gold or sifting through this stuff. So, ah, this is the stuff that really resonates for me. There's a little discovery also with Write Useful Books. I thought that traditional publishers and traditional authors who have, for example, I talked to so many nonfiction authors and they're like, yeah, I've written four books. There's no money in it, but I love it. I'm like, there is money in it if you do it differently. And those people, I thought they would really care, but they hated the book and they hated me by extension. I, I don't know why. I, I guess like reading it made them feel like they, they'd wasted their time on their previous books or whatever. And they were just not open to a new process. And traditional publishers were similar. They were like, makes a lot of sense, like never going to do it with our authors. I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Um, whereas the more independent, like first-time authors, self-publishing authors, independent authors, they loved it. Um, and so I was like, oh, this is really for first-time authors. Great. Like, fine. For me, I, I think the content would be equally valuable to all these groups, but not all of those groups cared. And once I knew it was for first-time indie authors, I was able to go through the book and really focus the tone and the example on them. That's what attracted me to the book and made me understand, actually, this is a conversation that we need to have with our community because I, I believe there's a lot of people who are wannabe or first-time authors who, who would get value from the just even just the concepts. Maybe if they don't write the book, there's something here that will kickstart their inspiration. I wanted to talk, go back a bit 
when you were talking about your beta readers, um, why, what you said there is you release this thing and it was a mess. And, and there's this, this feeling I can imagine some people going, I can't share this. This is like, what is going to happen if I share this? And I, the, the, there's the imposter syndrome or the you know fear of criticism. Um, and also even the fact that I'm going to get someone to pay for this. And the rest of your story kind of started to uncover the value of that first $25 investment. But at that point, I'm not sure how much you already planned that ahead. Someone saying, have a look at my mess and pay $24. So I don't start charging people until I'm sure that it's delivering value. So that's why I say it's like halfway through beta reading. I've already gone through a fair few iterations. I'm like, yeah, there's value here. And people are getting that value. Until then, it's purely them doing me a favor. And and they're there because they care about the promise of the book. And I, I try not to guilt friends or family into reading because I want my beta readers to be as close to possible as my real readers. And my real readers are only going to pick up the book if they want what it's promising. And so I only want beta readers and beta readers are almost like the extreme early adopters of your future real readers because they want what the book is promising so much that they're willing to deal with a broken, ugly, awkward, buggy first version because they care so much about the outcome. And it's a little bit tricky to identify them. I like the way Arvid Call did it with his book, The Embedded Entrepreneur, where he basically made a three-tier opt-in. He said, hey, I'm working on this book. You know, if you care about it, you can sign up to either be an alpha reader to deal with the true mess a beta reader after I've taken off some of the rough edges, or I'll just tell you when it's available for sale and finished if you want the final product. And people basically self-identified how extreme of an early adopter they were. And other people just were like, oh, the book's not for me. You know, I'll stay on your normal newsletter, but I don't care about this. That's fine too. And and then he kind of gradually uh, used people in and he brought them in in groups. I think when he started his first book, he said he had 500 people in his following. By the time he finished that book, by just sharing his work along the way, writing in public, he had 8,000. He's like, okay, and that was enough to launch his book at number one. But he didn't start with that. Uh, but anyway, for his second book, he had it. And instead of burning out all 8,000 on the first version, he basically sent the emails to them when he was ready for alpha readers in groups of 50 people. And he's like, bring in 50, bring in 50. Um, three quarters of those, even after they said they want it, they won't actually make the time and leave any comments because people are busy and reading a book is a big time drain. Fine. You invite more than you need. And... uh that would let him find the next set of problems. Like all a cohort of beta readers needs to do is identify the next set of book killing problems. Like, and that might be a chapter one. Typically, when you first start beta reading, people don't make it through the whole book. They, they, they don't make it far at all because it's bad, right? Like it, it's full of fluff. Like the value's hard to extract. They're not sure what you're saying. You go, great, that's the bug. You fix chapter one. Now everyone's getting to chapter two or chapter three if you got lucky, you know? Okay, great. That's our next set of problems. You fix that. It's not like people read the whole book and they go, damn you for wasting four hours. Like they read until they, they find a book killing problem and then they give up and, and you just keep repeating that. And, you know, eventually everyone's getting through the whole book. They're bringing their friends. They're getting the value. You're following up with them two weeks later and they're like, yeah, I applied it. Yeah, it worked. Uh, you know, and you're seeing all these positive signs. Do you, when you, when you get a beta reader in, because I'm thinking, do you actually, uh, because I've been asked to read a couple of beat, the books as a beta reader. And I, I kind of, for some, I like didn't start because I knew I wouldn't finish. And so I thought, oh, I'm not going to waste my time. I don't want to waste their time. So I'm just saying, I'm not going to read it because it's just, I'm not going to do 300 pages. It's just too much. Others I've read because I was interested in, and I, I, I forced myself, to be honest, hmm. some of the books is like, Ugh. do you give people permission to stop when they want to? Absolutely. Not, 
it's one of the advantages of using a, a web-based tool, like, you know, Google Docs or the one I built helped this book, because people get started and you can just look for where their comments stop. If someone's highly engaged and then they disappear, it's like, okay, something happened there. And I don't go chase them. The disinterest is the data. I'm just like, wow, my real readers will also give up there. So let me solve that problem. <laughs> How do I do that? Is it reduce the word count? Is it cut the fluff? Is it reorder things? Is it, you know, and I, I like when people give up. I, some of it is so funny. I, I had one, a beta reader. I, I put out a call on Twitter for, for the, the most recent book. And <laughs> someone goes like, oh my gosh, your first book changed my life. I can't wait to read this new one. Uh, she came into the document. She left exactly two comments. The first one, she goes, this is incredible. I'm so excited. I can't wait to read this. Um, then the second comment goes, this is really bad. And, and then she disappeared and never came back. And I was like, yeah, it's a first version. Like, what do you expect? You, you asked to be in here. And uh, stuff like that, like all you can do is laugh, right? And it doesn't matter. Well, what matters is that you end up with a product people love. It, it doesn't really matter what happened on the way there. I was going to say that, that, that is, I think, part of the key thing to be able to respond that way when someone says, well, what, even if they just leave, I love what you said. This is proper Instagram. The disinterest is the data. For some people, that is like debilitating. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? They got, uh, I'm not. Yeah. So there's a real <laughs> mindset here around how to navigate the, the apathy in one of the other this is also core to the mom test and customer development in general. I see founders all the time, like guilt tripping people into talking to them. It's like, you know, please answer my questions, answer my questions. It's like, look, if they don't want to talk to you about this industry, about this problem, they don't care. Like, and mm -hmm. if you force them to answer your questions, you're just going to muddy your data because now you're collecting data from a non-customer who doesn't care. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so getting excited about that disinterest is, yeah, it's a crucial mindset shift. And it's just like, oh, yeah, they don't care. Let me figure out why. Is it the wrong segment? Am I describing it wrong? Wrong value proposition? Do I have bugs in the onboarding? You know, like, is the first chapter boring? You work your way through all that. It makes me think of um, detaching yourself from the product, detaching yourself from the book, you know, not seeing it as they don't care about me. They don't like me. That's what we see all the time is this fear of, getting a negative response because they feel judged themselves versus like you've been able to see it as just part of the process of getting ideas out there. It's funny that it's quite domain specific also, because for example, uh, like I, I do not feel this is a silly example, but I do not feel this way about dancing or singing. Like I, I refuse to go to a nightclub or sing <laughs> karaoke, right? Because I'm like, no, I'm going to screw up and everyone's going to laugh at me. But but then like shipping an early version of a book or a product or a website that everyone hates, I'm like, yep, that's part of the process. Great feedback. Let me fix that. And it's funny that in like some domains of life, we're so uncomfortable with failure and in others, we're so happy with it. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a really good point though, Rob. I think there's there's an understanding how much, there's an emotional investment, I think, for whether you're building a product, a business, a book, um, you know, there, there's time you're spending on it and there's a real effort, uh, and, and there's how you attach your, not only your self-worth, but you've invested yourself in this thing. And so there is, uh, there's an emotional aspect to the, the rejection in small R, but the disinterest. I mean, I care about 
the idea and I care about the, the, the impact on the customer, the reader or whatever. And so I'm willing to do the work. It's like, I believe there's value in this idea somewhere, but I need to find it and I need to figure out how to package it in a way that it, it, it arrives for people and touches their lives. And so, yeah, I don't know. I've never been right the first time. It's like, you know, it's part of the process, but I, I still believe that I, I know there's a good core in here. It's just surrounded by garbage. And, and like, I need my readers or my customers help to, to show me which bits are garbage so that I can ship it away. I think that's what came out when you're talking about, all right, this is a mess, but I, you know, have a look at it. While the structure was a mess, the promise was clear. There was a promise of value in there. It was just, you were trying to get people to help you make that promise more smooth or that the value appear more smoothly uh, and, and to remove the roadblocks to getting to that value, it sounds like. So before we end, I just wanted to touch on, because you talk about the community and the community is a big part of what we're interested in, not only as running a community of entrepreneurs interested in putting happiness at the core of their business, but also when we talk to people who are starting new things, we, we, we offer or they, we invite them to think about the community side of what they're doing and how they can engage with a community or build a community around their, what they're doing. I'm still trying to learn about community. It's, it's the biggest thing I'm trying to learn about at the moment because it comes very unnaturally to me, much like customer development is. Uh, but I've, I've got a few thoughts. So let me start from like the strategic and business impact and then I'll get into the brass tacks of, of how I think about running one. Um, the strategic impact is incredible. Uh, so I think you can think of community as a direct profit center or you can also think of it as a strategic enabler for other stuff. And I think where it's most powerful is as a customer development superpower and a way to uh, engage with your evangelists, like your super users, for marketing-driven businesses. Because traditionally, customer development mimics the enterprise sales process. And when you're building an enterprise sales-driven business or a sales-driven business, you are going to be having these customer conversations anyway, which means that asking better questions is essentially free. It's free learning with zero time cost because you were already going to be having these conversations in a, in a sales context. When you shift to a marketing-driven context, like you're a consumer startup, for example, um, you would not normally be having these one-to-one -one conversations with all your customers, which means customer development is still worth it, but it's this extra activity that has a much higher perceived time cost and it distracts you from your product work and other things. In those cases, I think community is essentially the answer. Where if you if if your product, your service, your book has a value proposition, a promise, right? Which requires some amount of follow through on the part of your customers, put them in a community with the same promise as your product. Like my book is like write successful nonfiction. The the community is like, hey, this write successful nonfiction. Um <laughs> like get the knowledge here, but get the accountability and the execution by joining our community. So it aligns, the value proposition aligns, and then people all day talk about their problems and achieving that outcome. It's like, they're literally just like, you cannot get better customer research or customer development than this. And they, they're, they're so close to you that they become super evangelists, right? Because they have a personal connection. So powerful. Um, mm -hmm. For us, it's both. It's, it's a revenue center and it's also, it's got this strategic purpose. And the other way we're using it is as a holding pattern so we have a problem with our software, which is that it solves an important problem, beta reading, but people do not search for solutions at that moment. And if we miss them at that moment, we never get them. And people tend to write a book once 
And so it's not like they're checking marketing blogs every day, like content marketing's hard, building a newsletter's hard, like at this moment in their journey. And, and it's super important for us to catch them at that moment. Having the community essentially widens that target because now we can catch them anywhere in their book writing journey. And when they're ready for the software, they're already in our orbit. So it, it solves a really important like customer journey, marketing, targeting thing for us as well. Um, that's what it's done for the business. Uh, and then the way I think about actually running it is, so you've got the heartbeat, which re-engages people. Uh, some people use events, some people use content, newsletter, um, some people use uh, like actual customs within the community, like sharing little wins or planning your Monday goals or whatever. So you need your heartbeat, which like reminds people to engage. Um, you need the goal, like the outcome, the value proposition, the shared mission. Um, you need almost like your manifesto, which is how you're different from the commodity knowledge. So for example, in um, this came from the book Retention Point, really good for, for community builders. But he talks about if you're building a community around financial awareness and stock picking, for example, the default belief is that you can't beat the stock market and you should just put your money in index funds. So if it's a community of stock markets, your kind of manifesto is that actually you can. Like our belief that defies conventional wisdom is that you don't have to publish and pray, that you can reliably build successful nonfiction. It, it, so that's like our manifesto, right? Or the, the, that's what people gather around. And then the last piece is onboarding, which is kind of the first month member experience where you're kind of, um, you know, building this, this set of beliefs and, and everything else. And that's what I'm working really hard on now because we don't have a, we don't have that in place very well. Mm. And that's it. It's very time expensive. I think people are maybe like everything. Everyone used to be like, just build a podcast without recognizing that's like 20 hours a week that they us into that. And I feel community is yeah. kind of the same way. Like I'm a founder of the business. There's a million things I could be doing. And like half my time goes into the community at least. And so the, the time cost is substantial. I don't think every business should do it, but for the ones who are able to extract the benefits, mm, so good. And then as we get like uh, distributed autonomous organizations, DAOs, as we get smart contracts, as we get some of this blockchain enabled collaboration, um, the, the, the skill, the activity of community building could be like the enabling skill of the next huge wave of, of, of big, important businesses, which is really cool, right? Because you're, you're taking out the hierarchy in the middleman. Lisa asks, do you have a bias for which comes first? Defining a promise and then customer development for the specific audience that needs the promise or defining the reader profile and then customer development to find what promise is the most valuable? Always started personally from like an interesting idea that feels powerful when it's taught. Like my background, my worldview is around teaching. And so for me, it starts with teaching and I'm like, wow, this really works for people. And then I want to kind of capture it and, and spread it because a book is just a productized coaching session. And other people start from different places. Like uh, Nir Ayal says that he starts from a place of curiosity where he has a burning question and he can't find a good answer in any other books. And so he goes, okay, I need to find the answer. And in doing that research, which is going to take multiple years, you know, I'm going to write the book about it. People come from all different places. Um, I know some people just want to write a book. Like we've got a, there's a, a woman named uh, Kate Warwick in our authors group and she does PR, you know, professional communications. And she's like, I want to write a book in this. I want to write the non-boring like PR and copywriting book. It's like, okay, that's where she started from. And she needs it to be about that topic and in that industry because it's meant to support her consulting business. Um, but also she's got this, this stylistic thing. She's like, oh, I hate all the books in this space. 
I just want to do something stylistically the opposite from them. So she's she's calling it uh, everything you need to know about uh, business writing. You already know from the pub because the way you tell fun stories, the way you engage your friends, the way you talk to like a mixed crowd, how it's different one on one and with a group. She's like, you already know this stuff. So she's she's just building the whole book around this pup metaphor. Here's another um, question. Uh, Nira says it's a bit of a boring one, but anyway, I'm sure any question is a good question. How and where do you capture the ideas from the coaching calls and other conversations you have, and how do you synthesize them later? Also, do you go into these conversations with a book in mind, or do you let themes come up serendipitously? Uh, it's worked both ways for me. The mom test was teaching long before it was a book. Um, and I only wrote the book because I was on a boring vacation and it was kind of awkward. I was with like a friend's family who I didn't know very well. And so I just, and I had no internet. So I, I wrote the whole first draft of the book in like a cabin in Bavaria. But that was possible because I'd been talking to lots of other entrepreneurs and trying to help out and, and share my experiences and my failures. And the one thing that seemed most valuable to them was my take on on customer interviews. So when it came time and I was like, oh, I want to write something, that was the idea that was clear. That was like the valuable idea I'd had that had been mm -hmm. pre-tested. With Workshop Survival Guide, um, we'd built this education agents, agency doing workshops and all of that. And I thought that our workshop process was quite unique. And so I just wanted to document it before ending that stage of my career because I wanted to move away from teaching, but I thought that I should capture what we figured out um, and at that point, I went in specifically to talk to people. And I'm like, let me find out if this works for other people. I know it works for our team, but like, I, I've never taught it to others. So let me sanity check it. So I went into the coaching calls there very intentionally to like sanity check the book. Um, and the way I run those, I do two different types. I do listening conversations, which is more problem discovery. It's like, hey, like for, for, for write useful books, for example. I was like, hey, you've always wanted to write a book. You said, why haven't you? Talk me through it. Or like, oh, you wrote a book. What happened? Like, how did it go? What stressed you out? Just normal Custev stuff. And that's like listening and building reader empathy and just getting my head into, you know, into their worldview. And then at a certain point, I, when I've got the scope, like the promise, the, you know, the, the basics, I draft out a table of contents of learning outcomes. So takeaways, learning outcomes, tools. And I use that as my outline for the coaching conversations. And the way I document it is I basically just revise the table of contents after each conversation. So I'm like, oh, they need this before this. Or like, oh, I need to switch this example or this part's boring. And and then once that table of content, I'm like, I kind of believe in the education design of the table of content. Then it's just go into the tank, get a piece of the, the drafts, one, like three drafts usually, um, and then start beta reading. That's the way I do it. <laughs> it makes me think of something that we've been talking about recently on our, on our coaching programs. When we talk about the journey of change of a of someone we want to help, of a customer. We, they want to go from A to B, and there's things that are getting in the way. And the way we break down in terms of the, the outcome of the value is like a mindset shift or a capability. Learning a skill, a new way of doing something, or looking, reframing the situation that they find themselves in. And so it sounds like that table, you know, I'm linking, when you're talking about the tables of contents, it's like thinking about, I'm thinking about each of those tables of contents. Like, is it a mindset shift? Is it a skill? Maybe it's a bit of both as a way of then thinking, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, this is, this is where, and, and the thing I'm getting from also I got from the book is that value per page is like, how can I make sure I'm really focused as a, this is what you're going to get from reading this as opposed to what I think, um, 
And Nick was alluding to front-loading a book. Some US books, I get everything in one chapter, then it's padded without with stuff I don't need, which kind of annoys me. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think all of us have had that kind of experience with a book. Um, for people who want to explore more of your work, maybe get to know you more, uh, um, get to know you more closely or, or just want to write a useful book. How about if they want to know more about you, where, where's the best place to... It's just uh, robpitts.com. And there's there's links to all my books and I'm most active on YouTube right now. Well, people write in with questions and I answer with a little video so that other people can see it also. And uh, yeah, I'm just hanging out. <laughs> well, you're hanging out in a very beautiful place. Thank you for listening to our Happy Entrepreneur podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud, or wherever you found this podcast episode. And if you'd like to learn more about creating a new path for your work and business, a path that feels more meaningful, more purposeful, and more aligned to who you really are, then sign up to our newsletter on our website, thehappystartupschool.com, and you'll receive little nuggets of wisdom, stories of experienced entrepreneurs following this more purposeful path, and also a little bit of uh, wittering from myself and Lawrence and other useful bits of information and content to keep you inspired, keep you engaged, and keep you happy.